Podcast. Trinity Radio presents Skeptic TikTokers of Genius. TikTokers of Genius. Today we salute you, Mr. Edgelord Pamphlet Vandal. Mr. Edgelord Pamphlet Vandal. More than any atheistic argument or personal tragedy, your scribbled rant to quote, Be gay, do crime, is destroying the faith of believers one daily bread at a time. You don't need no stinking plan. You know erratically scratching out Hail Satan. Well, that's all it takes. Even though you don't believe in Satan. Of course, no one will see this for 20 years. But when they do, they won't see it coming. Cause you're all praise Baphomet. So again, here's to you, Mr. Edgelord Pamphlet Vandal. Because church devotionals need to learn. It's hard to be more devoted than you. Edgelord Pamphlet Vanda. Did you know that according to Christian mythology, Jesus of Nazareth is trans? No, he's not. Well, hello, it's me. Your wildest dream, your worst nightmare. You're neither. And titanic transgender theological toe-stepper Jubilee. Jesus was transgender, and I can back it up. No, you can't. So according to Christian mythology, that's right, I said mythology. The door is right there. Would you like some aloe vera? You just got burned. According to Christian mythology, God is infinite. He's the Alpha and the Omega. But apparently not a Beta? I don't know. Anyway, if God is infinite, every part of him is infinite, including his gender. To imply that God's gender is limited to something as simple as man is heresy. Okay, so it's not a heresy to say that God's gender is not infinite because I don't even know what you mean by that. What could you possibly mean by saying that God's gender is infinite? First of all, um, when you're talking about God and when you're talking about infinities, we have to know what you mean. Do you mean qualitatively infinite or do you mean quantitatively infinite? And so this is an important discussion to get down, but what could you possibly mean when you say uh, that God's gender is infinite? Well, I can think of two possible things you could mean. You could mean that he will have that he has a gender and that that gender will be the same uh, infinitely into the future so that it's an infinite amount of time that he will have the same gender. Or you could mean, in the other case, that actually he has an infinite number, an actual infinite number of different genders in God. Um, and, of course, that's ridiculous and not true. God is not a biological being, and so God doesn't have a biological sex. So I don't think what you're saying works in any case, but you have to explain your terms if you want us to be able to properly assess what in the world you're talking about. Jesus was fully God. Jesus was fully God. Jesus was also fully man, and that's important to this discussion. And when the Holy Stork brought baby Jesus to the manger where Mary and Joseph were... That's not how it works. I don't know. They don't teach sex ed in schools anymore. It wouldn't matter because this isn't traditional sex ed we're talking about, is it? Somebody looked at baby Jesus and went, aha, it's a boy. I wonder why they came to that conclusion. So Jesus was assigned male at birth. Jesus was assigned male at birth because his biology revealed that Jesus was a male person. At some point, maybe when he was seven, maybe when he was 12, maybe when he was 33, Jesus became aware of his divinity. His godhood became apparent. 
Now, this is actually kind of an interesting subject because in uh, the second chapter of the book of Luke, it does tell us that Jesus grew in stature and knowledge. And in fact, uh, that comes at the end of the story where he goes missing when the family is traveling back from Jerusalem and they go back and find him and he's there uh, in the temple. And he says, I have to be about my father's business. So uh, he has awareness, it seems like, of his divinity and uh, at that point. But the Bible does say that Jesus grows in stature and knowledge. Well, most people don't have a problem with the notion that, that Jesus was like an infant and then grew in stature. But the idea that Jesus grew in knowledge seems a little bit difficult to people. Maybe you haven't taken a systematic theology class and thought real deeply about the dual natures of Christ and all those sorts of things. But we can just simply say this, that um, at whatever point Jesus you want to say Jesus became fully aware of all that his divinity entails for him, the reality is he would not become a new gender then. He would still have his human nature and he would still know, I am uh, a biological male. At that moment, Jesus' gender became the same as God's, which is infinite. So Jesus would have no longer understood himself to be a man or a boy or whatever. And at that moment, Jesus of Nazareth became trans. And Jesus' gender didn't change. Jesus was a biological male, and whatever he became aware of, whenever he became aware of, the fact is his gender still didn't change. He still has male biology, and that is the important thing in this case. See, in the first century among the Jews, they had this really, I guess some people would say, backwards idea that if someone is born with uh, male biology, then they are going to be a man. And if someone is born with female biology, then they're a woman. And and that's how they looked at things. I, I know. Seems strange to us today, right? Trans deity? Trans divine? Trans god? I don't know. There's new genders coming out every day. It's in your Bible. Look it up. None of that commentary that you just suggested is implied at all in my Bible, and it's certainly not taught. And so you can see this completely falls apart, and there's nothing of substance to this at all. Let's keep trucking. God, the most important thing is to claim that it's invisible, inaudible, and imperceptible in every possible way. Otherwise, people will become skeptical when it appears to no one, is silent, and does nothing. This quote really struck a chord with me during my exit from Christianity last summer. It instantly reminded me of God works in mysterious ways. In a world where stuff just happens, God does exactly what he's expected to do. Nothing. What's the difference between a universe where a God exists but refuses to intervene, and a universe where a God just doesn't exist? Yeah, I get why um, counter-apologists and people like this might say things like, well, hey, if there was a God, we ought to be, I mean, we should be able to measure him with some device or see him or touch him or hear him or smell him or something like that. Here's the problem with those things. Those are all things that um, are true of experiencing the physical domain, the physical universe. And what, you know, you measure, you, you touch, taste, um, feel, smell, physical things. And when we're talking about God, we're talking about the creator of the physical universe. And as the as often comes up in the conceptual analysis that follows the Kalam cosmological argument, what we end up with is an idea where whatever is the cause of the physical universe of space, time, and matter is not going to be those things because those are the things we're trying to explain. If you go somewhere and you think, oh, okay, I found the explanation for the beginning of the universe. Um, it's right here. It's this, it's this 
uh, physical thing. It's this rock or it's this, uh, this uh, physical force that we've measured or, or whatever. Um, you're, then you're st you still haven't found the beginning of the universe, the, the, the cause of the physical universe, because you're still talking about something that is the physical universe. If you find something in space, time, or matter, you're still talking about the physical universe. And so whatever brought the universe into being, all of space, time, and matter isn't going to be those things. You know what that means? That means it's not going to be something that you can measure, that you can touch, that you can feel. Those are things in the physical universe. It's not, it's not uh, in space uh, confined by time or made of physical matter. And so when we're talking about God as the cause of the physical universe, then it's very important that we understand that what we're saying there is it's, it's not like we're trying to describe God in such a way that we've covered our bases and no one could ever possibly be, you know, find some way to poke and prod at that. No, they can still do that. They do that with, you know, um, uh, arguments from evil, incoherence arguments like that, uh, hiddenness arguments, all those kind of ways that they still try to show. It's not like we've put it into a situation where there's no way anyone could ever show that there's not a God. I mean, it, you, you could, you could at least in principle show, you could falsify uh, the God of, at least the God I believe in, Christianity, uh, by showing that there's something incoherent in God so, to, so defined or described. And that's exactly what those arguments that atheists will bring try to do. No, it's not that we're we're trying to cover our bases and make sure you can't see him, touch him, hear him, smell him, so that we can so that so that you can never prove that he's not there. That's that's not the idea. That's to miss the point. It's that when we're is that it's that when we're looking at what it would mean to to be uh, God, if we're, we're looking at what what would the creator of the universe be like if he's the creator of all space, time, and matter, we just end up with through through reasoning this out we end up with a god that is spaceless timeless and non-material and actually we we do think that you can look at the physical world around you and see indications that that god is there of course the bible tells us that in places like romans chapter 118 through 20 and we see it talking about it, even in the old testament the heavens declaring declaring the glory of god and we can look at nature and see that there's that there's good reason to believe in god now this is where you might raise an argument to show that, no, I think you're wrong. I don't think those are actually good reasons to believe in God because we have this mechanism that can result in what looks like design and teleology and all of that. So you can't just go out and say, go look at the trees, right? And say, well, that proves that there's a God. Well, uh, let me let me just say, a lot of people say all the time, why all the complex arguments? Why all of the, the detailed stuff? Most Christians don't have a PhD in all this. They don't know about all these things. Um, you know, here's the thing. I actually think, that when you look at trees, great reason to believe in God, animals, human beings, great reason to believe in God. I look at my hand, it works. My, my nose smells things. It really seems designed. It seems like there's an end in mind, in mind. No matter how you think we got to this point, it seems like there was a design or a telos, a purpose in getting us to this point. And, uh, and so, so, so yeah, I think, look at the trees, look at your hand, look at, I think there's evidence of design everywhere, but you're right. If you, now atheists and skeptics have pushed the ball further. It's not that the arguments have to get so complex. It's that when you push further and you start saying, well, I think I have an explanation for that. Okay. Well, we go a little bit deeper and we're like, look, still looks like some incredible design here in biology. We've got cells, we've got all of this uh, interesting biological material in human beings and, and we have and in animals and we have this DNA and we have all these kind of things. Um, and, and so that, that explains, they might say, well, that explains why things result the way they do. 
Okay, but do you hear what you just said? Now you're saying that there is this what really seems like a language system, a code, and all of that kind of thing. It seems to get more theistic the deeper you look at uh, life on Earth and things uh, like that. So, uh, yeah, you, sometimes it gets complex, but but you know we can still function there. But what happens is oftentimes if someone says, "Well, that's not," a, you know, I could say, "Well, look at look at uh, the design of the world." Well, that's not good enough reason to believe that there's a God because we have an explanation for that. All right, well, let's go deeper, and then we go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, answering objections. And when we get to the very end, they say, "This is so complex. No Christian knows this stuff. Nobody believes because of these things. How would anybody?" Well, the idea is we always thought you could look at creation and see evidence of design. It's just that we kept getting challenges to the point that we've gone all the way to the deepest levels of this thing that we can reach. We still, in fact, we see now more reason to believe that this is incredibly designed. But it's at that point that the the gears get switched. And now we're saying, um, we're saying something like, well, look how complex it has to be. Well, no, it didn't have to be that complex. It got that complex because we kept arguing about it. And as complex as it gets, there's still incredible reason to believe. Hmm. That's a good question. I think you should change your religion like you change your underwear. How often does everyone else change their underwear? I change mine every day. Change your religion like you change your underwear. And people in the comments made a good point. What is she doing to this poor carrot? You know, change your religion. Show God that you really care. How is changing my religion going to be showing God that I really care, just in and of itself in principle? Uh, perhaps you could say, well, maybe it shows God you care that you're taking religious ideas and ideologies and, and worldviews very seriously. I'm taking them about as seriously as I possibly can, so I think I'm doing that. So why is it necessarily a good thing for me to change religions as often as I change underwear? And are you really taking things seriously if you're changing your religion as often as you're changing your underwear? This is getting strange. Change your religion. Try something new. Use your critical thinking skills to question all you eat, drink, buy, think, say, and do. Well, see, but that uh, leaves completely off the table the possibility that using my critical thinking skills actually um, helps to confirm for me the truth of Christianity. Lady, what is wrong with you? And you know, that's really a great way to end this. My sentiments exactly. Did you know that Jesus helped his friend come out? In John chapter 11, verse 43, this is what it says. Jesus called out in a loud voice saying, Lazarus, come out. So there's a major equivocation happening here right from the jump where this uh, person who is known to be uh, an LGBT pastor says, did you know that Jesus helped his friend come out? Well, what are we all thinking he's saying there? Come out of the closet, come out as a gay man or something like that. But of course, that's not what goes on in the story as even this guy seems to understand as it moves on. You see, Lazarus was locked up in a cold, dark tomb, wrapped in burial cloths, left for dead. That's exactly what so many Christians and so many churches do to LGBT people. They wrap us up and bind us up and tell us that we need to keep our identity, our true self locked away. But Jesus, upon seeing Lazarus in this state, he says, Lazarus, come out step into the light take off the cloth be who you are come alive i believe that this is what jesus is speaking to every lgbt person come out of the tomb of shame take off the chains that have bound you up step into the glory of who god made you to be fearfully and wonderfully made just as you are you are beloved of god 
Now notice here, the coming out here has nothing to do with sexuality. As he tells you, Lazarus is in a tomb and Jesus says, come forth or come out because he raises him from the dead. What Robertson does then is he says this sort of idea, and this is me being as charitable as I possibly can. I'm going to assume he doesn't mean to imply that this passage is teaching that Jesus wants to help people who are LGBT come out of the closet and embrace a lifestyle in line with uh, you know something with the LGBT, one of the lifestyles associated with that. So uh, I'm going to assume he knows that that's not the case. And instead, what he means here is uh, just like Jesus reveals himself to be the kind of person who would help his friend even come out of a grave and come back to life. So this tells us an eternal principle about who Jesus is. He's the kind of person that would want to affirm people in their gay lifestyle or their trans lifestyle or whatever perhaps that it might be. He even says, I think, or I believe this is what God wants us to know. But as we've gone to like a biblical passage here and ostensibly to learn something from the word of God, uh, some teaching from the Bible about how we should then live. But what's happened is a, 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 a story in the Bible that has nothing at all to do with uh, human sexuality or Jesus's thoughts about human sexuality, but has something to do with something else entirely, a man being raised from the dead. Uh, we go to a story like that. And then to make the point that is not the point of that passage and is not the point of Jesus's ministry to say that um, I want to affirm you in whatever sexual lifestyle you're uh, adhering to. I mean, it's almost like we're at the point now where it just doesn't even matter what the Bible was actually saying as long as we can find something that can be sort of an analogy or an illustration that we can use to make the points we want to make. This is not good. Hey, while we're at it, let's get some more from this guy. Every abortion is forced. This remarkably arrogant and smug man is Seth Gruber, a pro-life activist. In this video, he's going to claim that all abortions are forced because it's not about the mother, but the infant in the womb that's being forced to death. While this argument might have a shock factor and rhetorical strength for his conservative audience, it's simply illogical and untrue. In a majority of countries around the world and throughout history, a fetus does not constitute a person. While biologically we can acknowledge it as life, it is not acknowledged as a person and therefore does not have the rights that persons have. This definition of person was defined by the Supreme Court during Roe vs. Wade. In a post-Roe world, this is going to be the argument of the pro-life side, that personhood begins at conception, which again is an absurd claim that has not been supported in a majority of countries around the world and actually does harm women. What I want you to notice about this is that the reasons he gives for us not to consider an unborn person a person is because of legalities and decisions by countries around the world. And the fact is, that just doesn't prove the morality of this or the personhood of the individual. This is just a bad reason to say that we should that we should uh, continue having abortions or any particular thing just because a lot of people do it or a lot of countries do it. Um, if we did that, think about some of the things that might still be going on if we hadn't decided that just because something is legal, it doesn't mean that it's right. And just because it's legal in a majority of countries doesn't mean that it's right. But to the question of whether it's logical or illogical to have this moral position or how we should consider people persons or when, I'd just like to spin this case for you real quick. I'll be right back. Stephen Schwartz put together what I think is probably one of the best cases against abortion that can be made. He uses the word SLED, which is an acronym. 
Each letter stands for something else, a different part of the case against abortion. The S in the word sled is for size. If we are to determine that the unborn are not persons because of their size, i.e. they're just a small collection of cells, then the argument of the pro-choicer proves far too much. The argument would amount to saying the smaller a human life is, the less a person it is. Thus, short people are less persons than tall people? My wife would certainly object to the notion that because she is head and shoulders less tall than I am, that makes her less of a person. I actually prefer petite women, so I would object on preference to this anyway. Yet we all know deep down that the size of a person's body doesn't have anything to say about their personhood. We cannot bigotedly discriminate based on size. L is for level of development. A common pro-choice claim is that because the unborn are not only small, but also less developed, only a collection of cells, that on that basis they're not actually persons. They're not yet totally developed human life, but merely potentially totally developed human life. The problem is that what can only be meant here is that the unborn are potential adult human beings, but not yet adult or fully developed. However, again, this would prove far too much for the pro-choicer. My six-year-old daughter is also not a fully developed adult human yet. Is she less of a person? She's a potential adult human. Her level of development is at a reasonably early stage. In fact, she's less developed than my nine-year-old daughter who is in turn less developed than me. I guess I'm the only real person involved in this equation. But obviously this is false. We cannot bigotedly discriminate based on the level of development. E is for environment. The most used response in favor of abortion is that the unborn are not actually persons because of their environment. They're in the womb rather than outside of the womb. Because of this unusual location, they are said to be potential persons, but not yet actual persons. The problem is that in no other aspect of life do we determine whether someone is a person based on location. Are Africans less persons than North Americans from a North American perspective because they're in a different location? Does one's status of personhood change based on which room of the house they are currently inhabiting? Naturally, the answer is, of course not. We cannot bigotedly discriminate based on environment. D is for degree of dependency. Since the unborn are dependent on the mother for survival, via nutrients, amniotic fluid, etc., the pro-choicers often imply that they are not persons and it is okay to terminate them at the will of the mother who is, after all, supplying the means by which the unborn survive. But what about the disabled? Elderly people living in assisted living facilities or anyone else who is dependent on another for their survival. Do they also cease to be persons upon developing such needs? The answer is of course no, they do not. We cannot bigotedly discriminate based on the degree of dependence. Okay, before we go, let's take a look at the comments section and see what people are saying to us. This first one was on YouTube. It says, I like to play a game. It's called, How Long Would a Christian Influencer Last Against Matt Dillahunty? For you, I'm going to say about eight minutes. My response, um, I, debated, I debated Matt Dillahunty live on stage. It lasted about two hours, I reckon. Next, uh, we have uh, someone saying, and this was an actual YouTube comment. It said, what degree Masons are y'all? And I said, uh, what? I'm not a Mason. By the way, Jonathan's not a Mason either. 
And they said, interesting, looking through your thumbnails, it's like one after another of the Masonic hand on chin, which can literally be found in Masonic literature. I even did a side-by-side -side from your thumbnails to early Masonic handout, hand guides. And, and there's maybe there's more, but anyway, the point is um, I'm not a Mason. If I am throwing out Masonic signs in my thumbnails, it's completely unbeknownst to me. Now I do stroke my beard or put my hand on my chin sometimes, but that seems to be kind of a common human um, sort of motion or whatever. So uh, not a Mason, sorry to let people down. And uh, let's take a look here. We have from Billy the Minnow Salesman. This was from the discussion with Leighton Flowers that we had. And we were talking about our beards. And uh, Leighton said that his had to be shorter because that's the way his wife liked it. My wife likes it a little longer. And uh, Billy says, this part of the discussion is very relevant. Currently, my wife is more aligned with Leighton's wife in beard length preference. Well, she's wrong. But we're going to try to get a little more body to it. And hopefully at the end of it, she'll come around to Braxton's wife's opinion. I've learned that my wife's usually right about almost everything. So um, I responded to him, this is the way. But that was uh, one that I enjoyed. Also on the Rhett and Link discussion that we recently had, there were some thoughts um, that I think are, are interesting and important to discuss. Someone said that the Bible was boring. Rhett said that the Bible, he tried to read through it last year and it was a little boring for him. And Kelly says on YouTube, I have read the Bible three and a half times in just over a year. I've listened to it a couple of times. I've done many Bible studies over the last year and never once have I been bored. Not even once. I believe if you truly love the Lord, you truly love his word. Now, we're talking about Rhett here, and Rhett has said that he has uh, walked away from Christianity. He doesn't identify as a Christian anymore. He doesn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So he doesn't approach Scripture the way that we do. And that's why in the response video I made, I was careful to say something like, well, hey, if you're not committed to this, uh, maybe I can understand why you might think it was boring or something. Although um, I recommended that people check out Steve Gregg. Someone took us up on that. I hope that you'll check it out because at Steve Gregg's thenarrowpath.com, there is a verse by verse tab and you can go through every uh, verse in the Bible with Steve Gregg and get multiple different sort of uh, takes on it as he mentions all the uh, orthodox positions you could take most of the time. But Idol Killer says, when our kids were young, uh, were younger, we'd often watch Good Mythical Morning with Rhett and Link. They're extremely intelligent, often funny, and seem genuine. I appreciate you tackling the claims they've made. Hopefully they watch this and it gets through to them. Um, yeah, I've said many times, me and my kids used to watch Good Mythical Morning. I knew that they were believers, or at least had been believers. I was under the impression they were still believers. Um, and we watch, obviously, content that's not from believers. But Rhett and Link, I kind of felt good about letting my kids watch that. We kind of watch as a family. Short episodes, wholesome for the most part, uh, you know, youth group type games and things. Um, but now, uh, I, you know, the problem is... Rhett and Link, I can't encourage people with young children to, to have them watching Rhett and Link because what, what I said in the response video, I think is still true is if you're like, if you're a person who is, um, some of the, like with Rhett and Link, they're, they're very likable. They've got a lot of charisma. They're funny. They, they strike you as your cooler, older brother whose opinion just kind of, some people just kind of take because man, he's so cool. And he seems like he's smarter than me. And 
he's looked into all this and I've come to trust him. And so, yeah, I've wondered about this stuff anyway. Yeah, maybe there's nothing to it. And that can sometimes be more powerful than some argument laid out. Yeah, I'd almost rather my kid watch some argument from Graham Oppie where Graham Oppie is sitting there, nothing against Graham Oppie's charisma or anything like that, but I'd rather my kids watch something from Graham Oppie uh, that, that that, that is aimed at raising questions about God's existence or an argument against God's existence or something like that or a deconstruction of a theistic argument than I would them watching uh, a video where Rhett is trying to explain why he's fallen away from the Christian faith. Because I, I do want my kids to face the very best of the, intel, uh, of the intellectual case that people who are critical of Christianity have to offer. But what has come to us from Rhett isn't so much an intellectual case as it is the vibe, a vibe that my cooler older brother or this cool influencer uh, and that can be far more compelling to certain people at certain stages in life. So I can't recommend people watch Good Mythical Morning because while most of the time, probably 99% of the time, they're not going to talk about these worldview issues. Um, they have talked about it and fans will come across that if they're fans. And I think that that it would be fine if it was them laying out their reasons. But instead, they're they're offering their personality almost, whether that's the intent or not, as a motivation. And I just, I, I, that's vacuous. And um, I don't want my kids to fall to that uh, possibly when they're at a stage in their life where they're not able to realize they're not really be, being given like reasons. They're just being given vibes. Um, so that's, that's an important thing to say. And with that, I guess we'll kind of close it down here. Maybe I had something else. I, I don't know. We'll just, we'll just let it go. But this has been a lot of fun. I'm glad to be doing one of these videos where we're responding to multiple things at once. Glad you were here. And listen, we'll see you next time on Trinity Radio. Mr. Edgelord Pamphlet Vanda.